up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, we're discussing 413, Man of Worth. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassnack Files to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons six and seven as well as Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 413 Man of Work. favorite episodes of the season. Season four isn't my favorite, but I felt like it wrapped a lot of storylines up and overall was a pretty good episode. Lots of different moving parts going on. So I'm not going to tarry too long. We'll just get straight into it. I'm just jumping off the deep end here, guys. It's a contested topic. So we're gonna just dive right in is Myrta and Jocasta. This is a completely fictional storyline, obviously, because Myrta was not in the fourth book at all. A lot of people like it. I'm kind of on the fence about it. I'm a big old fence sitter. And normally I put myself on one side or the other, but I can see the merits of both. As far as a show storyline goes, it's pretty decent. I mean, if you're going to have Murta around, you might as well make his love life a little interesting. However, where it starts to get annoying for me is when it takes time away from important character points for later in the series, which I kind of feel like is what happens in this episode, to be quite honest. I know that it's something that the powers that be are like, oh, well, wouldn't it be interesting if this happened? And (laughs) one of my really good friends, she said, I always start to worry when people say, wouldn't it be interesting if... (laughs) Um, I always get a little scared because it's not one of those things where you want them to play around with it. You just want them to tell the story that's already there. And I do get that. I really do start to wonder myself sometimes when they get these created storylines because there's so much that these books have to tackle that why make the story harder for yourself and bring in extra stories to tell, I guess. When you look at it as a show watcher, though, I guess Marta and Jocasta do kind of make sense as a couple. They've known each other for a really long time. Marta was head over heels for Jocasta's older sister, Ellen, which I think another friend of mine, one, that's one of the problems that she has with Marta and Jocasta as a couple, not as a book reader, just as a show watcher, because she kind of feels like he's disloyal to Ellen. Like, a lot of what drives Murta, especially as we get into season five, is his oath to Ellen to watch over Jamie. And I feel like he's kind of held a candle for her all of these years. And now, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, well, I can't have Ellen, so let's just sleep with Jocasta. So I kind of do have reservations about that. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. That being said, they are each other's tether to Scotland. They're the reminder of each other's youth. And I think that there's something very fundamental about that kind of relationship that they take you back to the good old days, you know. So I do understand 
And in that respect, I guess it makes sense that they would end up together because they know more about each other than any other person in their lives. But I also think that that is the source of a lot of the tension between them because Jocasta, whenever she was younger, she saw Myrta kind of fawn after Ellen and just trail after her like a puppy. I think there was probably a part of her that was in love with him a little bit. And this is just purely from the show side of things. Obviously, when we started dissecting the book, none of this stuff exists. So it wouldn't be anything to do with the book characters. I'm just basing my conjecture purely on what we get in the show, just to make that clarification. But I think that Jocasta probably spent a lot of her youth yearning after Myrta and not getting any of his attention because he only had eyes for Ellen. And so now in their older years, when Myrta notices Jocasta, she's already there. She already had those feelings for him long ago, and it just kind of reawakens that side of her. And I do think that Jocasta worries about Myrta a lot because... If you love someone, you don't want to see them put themselves in continual danger. And it's like she says, you know, I'm an old woman. The war is long behind me and it should be behind you too. He just doesn't see it that way. That's not the kind of person Myrta is. Myrta believes that if there's something worth fighting for, it doesn't matter if it's a lost cause. It'll never be a lost cause as long as the ideals behind it are worth fighting for. And so I think that's something that Myrta holds on to a lot over the course of this season and next season, season five, because he really feels like this time it could be different, that with the regulators, they may make a difference. Whereas, yes, he fought at Culloden for many of the same reasons, but it was, in the end, a terrible result. And that's what Jacasa is afraid of. That's what I think... These two represent very clear divides in the beliefs leading up to the American Revolution. So I think that was one very good usage of having them as a couple because in the American Revolution, it wasn't just the American colonists versus the English redcoats. When we see historical fiction, a lot of times it's simplified down to that. But in reality, it was some of the American colonists versus other American colonists. It was the loyalists versus the rebels. This divide happened amongst family. It wasn't, oh, so-and-so. It wasn't like in Scotland a lot of the times where it's the Campbells versus the McDonald's or what have you. It was brothers and sisters, fathers and sons that were split down the middle. They believed in different things. And I think Myrta and Jocasta are a good example of this because Jocasta is representing the people that have suffered rebellion before and lost at the hands of the British. They know what they are up against and they know what they have fought so hard to earn back. And they've come to America and they have found a new way of life and they're finally making things work again. Now the rebels are wanting to fight for freedom, for less taxes, for less corruption. These are their ideals, and they're willing to fight and die for that. But the loyalists are thinking, why would we put ourselves through that again? The British are just going to win, and we're going to be in the exact same boat we were in 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So 
that's kind of two sides of the same coin, I suppose. And I find it pretty fascinating that they chose to wrap this all into one relationship in Outlander. Whether it is a uh, piece of creative license or not, I did think that it was useful to kind of have that divide because Jocasta very much is worried about Myrta and doesn't want him to sow the seeds of rebellion. But Myrta's like, you know, even if it's a lost cause, I still have to fight. I still have to do what's right. So I think that that's very interesting moving forward into season five, which is why I understand why they ended this episode the way that they did. I didn't necessarily care for it because I felt like it took away from the importance of Roger returning to Brianna and his decision and all of that. But I do understand why they chose to end this episode with Jamie's orders to hunt down Myrta because it's a great jumping off point when we come into season five. Because the first half of season five is strongly focused on that story point. That's kind of our biggest storyline from the River Run, North Carolina sides of things in this episode. But there's a lot of stuff going on up north in New York with Jamie and Claire. We haven't really seen them for the better part of two episodes now. And so this episode really sticks with them. A lot of the time as they go through the battle of trying to get Roger back from the Mohawk. When we're seeing their story, we're getting a lot of details, a lot of loose ends being tied up. One of those loose ends being the Ottertooth storyline. In The False Bride, Claire gets stuck out in the storm and she is confronted with Ottertooth's ghost. She doesn't know it's Ottertooth at the time. She just knows that it's this random Indian who's been painted for death and has been scalped which is frightening in and of itself. And she found this skull and the skull had silver fillings. So she knows that this person, whoever he was, was a time traveler and most likely a Native American. So now when we get up to the Mohawk, we start to learn a bit more about his story. They're going to trade with a bunch of these people and then they see Claire's necklace. They see Ottertooth's opal and everybody gets really freaked out and it just gets really weird and we're wondering what the hell is happening it turns out in the twist of fate that is the outlander verse this opal is connected to this certain tribe that has been holding roger as a slave so by the end of season four everything gets tied up in a neat little bow and we have all the answers to everything that has been opened up in season four but i like that we have known kind of all along that this man was a time traveler because of the silver fillings in his skull. And yet we don't know much about him until Claire and Jamie and Ian sit down with the Mohawk and kind of learn his story. It's yet another perfect example of how people should just not try to change the future when they travel through time because it always ends really, really badly, like really badly. (laughs) He had the best intentions He wanted to save his people from a terrible fate. It's no secret that in the grand scheme of American history, the Native Americans get the short end of the stick 99.9% of the time. And Ottertooth, we'll later find out that his name is Robert Springer. Later in season five, I think we find that out. But Robert Springer went back in time to try to convince the Mohawk that they should 
not trade with European settlers, they should not be friendly towards them, that in fact they should drive them from their land before they get too much of a foothold and it becomes unsafe and unstable for the Native Americans to be there. And I think that has a lot of support when he first gets there. The young woman that's telling the story says that he had many followers and they went out after white settlers and they came back with scalps. But the chief at the time was angry and worried that there would be retribution from the crown over this blatant attack towards their people. They're probably right. There probably would have been retribution. So the chief acted upon it and drove him away, drove Ottertooth out of the village. But Robert Springer was not willing to give up. And I think he probably should have if he wanted to save his life. But he didn't really seem to care about that. All he wanted was the future of his people to be safe. And he felt that if he was giving his life for a cause like that, it ultimately couldn't be a bad decision. And honestly, the more he tried to convince the Mohawk that their alliance with the white people was a bad idea, and the more they said, no, it's fine, he just kind of went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And ultimately, they ended up having to kill him because he just kept coming back and kept coming back. It wasn't a good situation for anybody. I mean, looking back on it, it's kind of a noble cause. I mean, he really tried to prevent the loss of the Iroquois nations, and it just didn't end up well. And so we're left with this prophecy. The one who possesses the stone has the power to see how the Iroquois people's story will end. And I think it's funny how that works because there's nothing, absolutely nothing that made Claire pick that tree to take shelter under. And it just so happened that Ottertooth's skull and corresponding opal were buried under that tree. It just speaks to the mysticism of this series that it's all connected. It's all one big circle and everything is meant to be in one way or another. And it just so happens that the person that found this stone is a time traveler. And she does have the knowledge. She possesses that knowledge to know what happens to the Iroquois nations. So it really makes you wonder, as a reader, as a show watcher, what else is connected? Like, what's Diana got up her sleeve? And that's why I'm really excited about the ninth book, because I think we're going to get some more answers coming into the series as far as the magic of the series. I think it becomes more of a prominent thing the further on we get because our main characters are getting more and more answers as to how time travel works. There are certain magical elements to this series that are very understated, but that seem to have a connection to other things that make our characters come together and find commonalities. So it's very interesting to see how that all comes together in the season four finale. One thing that did throw me for a loop in this episode was... Ian's decision to stay with the Mohawk. And looking back on it, I'm not really sure why it threw me for a loop because you can clearly see the seeds being planted all along through season four. It starts from basically the minute Jamie and Claire land in America. It was such a redirect on the whole standard plot device of Jamie sacrificing himself and him and Claire ended up being separated and Yada yada. I mean, I watched season four before I read the book, so I was seeing this all through new, fresh eyes. 
And I was totally expecting for Jamie to stay with the Mohawk and then be separated again at the end of season four because it's a common thing. That's what's expected because that's what we've seen happen over the course of four seasons. Jamie and Claire constantly being separated. So when we get the opportunity again, the audience's first reaction is, oh, here we go. And then all of a sudden, Ian steps up and says, no, I'm staying. I just thought that was the best idea. It was the best creative solution to this problem. And it all started back 13 episodes ago. So I found it absolutely fascinating that this season, no more than Ian was in it, honestly, was his journey from being a boy to becoming a man. And we talked all season about a man of worth. And I love that that's one of the things that got brought up in this season finale was you once told me you wished me to become a man of worth. And Jamie looks at him with tears in his eyes and says, you didn't ken how worthy you are. That was a moment of fantastic payoff between these two characters. It was absolute gold. And it is not a moment that I think would have had the same impact if they had not had that moment between Jamie and Ian in the season one premiere in the graveyard when they have that bonding moment where Jamie comforts Ian and tells him that, look, I know what you're going through and it's okay. Like, you did what you had to do to survive and nobody's going to hold anything against you for that. It was a fantastic moment that was almost cut until Diana Gabaldon stepped up and said, no, you can't cut that if you want the season four finale to have the same emotional impact on your viewers as it has right now. And I'm so glad they listened to her because she was 100% right. And we get these small moments between Jamie and Ian throughout the rest of the season. But again, it's not going to amount to the same thing if you don't have that really powerful scene between the two of them in 401. And I think it's when they're sitting in the tavern in the first episode where Ian is fighting with Jamie. He doesn't want to go back to Scotland with to his parents. And Jamie tells him, your parents want more for you. Like they want you to become a man of learning and influence and a man of worth. And that's the first time that that term is really mentioned. I always thought that it was ironic that that's the term that people used back then for people that were educated and landowners because they're a man of worth, a man of substance. Like they have something to offer the world, I guess, as if other people that aren't educated and don't own land aren't (laughs) worthy of giving the world part of themselves, I guess. I always thought that was an interesting term, but in general, I think over the course of the season, we begin to see that man of worth is a technical term, yes, but that when Jamie says to Ian, you didn't ken how worthy you are, it really hits home that Ian is talking about he wants to be useful, but it's not for Jamie a matter of how useful he is. It's how worthy he is, how worthy of love, how worthy of sacrifice he is. And I thought that that was a beautiful moment between them because he's Jamie's son for all intents and purposes. For the past four or five years, Jamie has been his parental figure. And I think that in a lot of ways, 
Ian has filled that void for Jamie as well because, yes, Jamie raised Fergus, but throughout Fergus's formative years, Jamie was in prison for a lot of that time. And yes, Fergus looked up to him his whole life, but Jamie couldn't be there for him in the same way that he was there for young Ian. So I think it's very tough for Jamie to say goodbye to him because he's saying goodbye to part of himself. And in his stead, he's taking on Roger, a man that he doesn't know much about and honestly seems kind of worthless in comparison to to young Ian. And so when we get that scene between Roger and Jamie later on, it kind of all amounts to one big cluster because tensions are running high on all sides. But... I think when Ian makes the decision to stay, there are some great camera angles that happen in this scene because you have Jamie saying goodbye to Ian and then Claire comes up and gives him a big hug. And this was one of the major drawbacks of the episode for me. And it always takes me out of the scene completely is when Katrina steps up and goes, oh, Ian, and like hugs him. I just felt like that was so insincere like it was one of those moments where I'm like yeah that's totally in the script that wasn't something that Katrina's just doing so it always takes me out for a moment I wasn't completely absorbed in the scene in in that moment and I feel like that was a bit of a drawback but honestly I think that's one of the only negative moments of this episode that I can 100% without hesitation say that yeah that wasn't good Like, that's my only pet peeve about this episode. So I guess that means it was a pretty good episode, all in all. But when Claire comes up to Ian and is saying goodbye, there's a shot on Roger, and he kind of just watches this exchange between Jamie and Claire and Ian, and then kind of looks down at the ground. And it's that moment where he's feeling completely inadequate, because he knows that Ian is doing this for him, and because... They fucked up. Jamie and Ian royally fucked up. And Roger doesn't know that he's going to be able to hold a candle to Ian in the eyes of these people that are saying goodbye to him. And I think that that has a lot to do with his hesitation to come back as well. And it sucks. Yes, I 100% get Jamie's anger because Ian gave himself up to the Mohawk to right a wrong. He didn't do it because it was 100% what he wanted. I mean, yes, he does find some fascination in the Native American culture and he finds it interesting and he wants to learn more about it. But if given the choice between staying with his family and living with the Mohawk, I don't think he would have chosen that if he didn't have to, to get Roger back. Ian and Jamie promised Brianna that they would do what they had to do to get him back because they're the ones that screwed up. That's why Jamie volunteered himself in the first place, because he swore to Brianna, I will get him back or I won't come back myself. And this is him holding his side of the bargain because this is it. If this is the only way that they can get Roger back, I mean, they've literally tried everything else and it just wasn't enough. This is the last thing that Jamie can think of. It's the last ditch effort. And when Ian says, no, I'm staying, Jamie would rather take a knife to the gut, I think, than walk away from Ian. And 
I think in the end, he realizes that Ian's not a, a little boy anymore. He's a man and he's made his decision and he's sticking to it, especially when Ian says, I gave them my word. Don't make me break it. Jamie is forced into a situation where he has to respect Ian's wishes. And he knows that Ian's decision is what's going to allow them to walk out of there. And I think Ian made the right decision because the land that... Jamie and Claire have, and they've built their cabin on, and they're building their settlement on, that can't function without Jamie. It can function without Ian. It can't function without Jamie. And so I think Ian realizes that to a certain extent, that if it's a choice between him or Jamie staying with the Mohawk, it has to be Ian. And I think that Ian has the clarity of mind in that moment to make that decision for Jamie, because obviously Jamie is not being clear-headed about it. And so when they have to leave, Jamie does it because he knows he has to, but it doesn't mean he's happy about it. And so as we move on and we get to the scenes where Jamie and Claire start to tell Roger what's going on, we really get this tumultuous mix of feelings in Jamie. He's not thinking with a clear head because he's angry with himself. He's devastated at the loss of Ian. He's fearful for how the situation with Brianna is going to work out. He's got all of these emotions roiling around inside him. And whenever Roger starts to learn about the entire situation, he doesn't process things the same way that Jamie processes things. And so what Jamie takes as hesitation, Roger simply takes as thinking things through. Especially when Jamie is emotional, he has a very, very short fuse. It doesn't take anything to set him off. And I think that's probably one of the biggest drawbacks of Jamie as a character is sometimes he doesn't really think things through. And we see that 100% in this episode that he just goes off on Roger for no apparent reason. And he's very intense about the whole thing. And I love that At one point, Claire's like, Jamie, for God's sake, just let him think. Because Claire gets it and Claire knows Roger and Claire knows Jamie. She understands how very different these men are. For all their similarities, they are very, very, very different people. I really do love all of these scenes. They're not huge scenes. They're three or four medium-sized scenes, I guess. There is one scene that is massive, and I am curious to know how many pages it is. It's The one where they tell Roger that Brianna's been raped and there are some great angles to get different views on people's reactions. And it was a really well shot scene, but we'll kind of start at the beginning with this because I don't want to forget to talk about anything. The first altercation, the physical altercation between Jamie and Roger I love seeing that because I think people think of Roger as a almost a coward in a lot of respects. Like he doesn't get physical with people and he just he's one of those people that uses words and not his fists. Well, no, like Roger lays into Jamie and I think Claire wants to stop him. But this is the side of Jamie that I really admire because he's like, no, leave him be. I suppose I owe you. And he really does. I mean, he beat the piss out of Roger, like almost killed him. So the least he can do is stand there and take it while Roger uses him as a punching bag because this man has gone through 
probably close to six months of torture at the hands of the Mohawk, just slavery and terrible conditions. He's malnourished. It's just awful. And so, yeah, I think the least that Jamie can do for him is to stand there and let Roger beat him up. I think it's hard for Claire to watch because, A, she's thinking, okay, now I'm going to have to fix up both of these guys after they're done pummeling each other. But also because seeing Roger waylay Jamie and Jamie not doing anything to defend himself, it's all too easy for her to envision Jamie doing the same to Roger. Only almost worse because... Roger literally had no defenses up. Like, at least Roger isn't going to kill Jamie. There's nothing saying that Jamie wouldn't have killed Roger. So I do like that scene because we can see clearly that Roger's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Like, he's taking out months and months and months of frustrations on Jamie and with every right, every right, as far as I'm concerned. When Roger learns that Bree has been attacked I think it's really hard for him, especially when he learns that it happened literally right after he left. Whenever he is like, Brianna was raped by Stephen Bonnet? Clearly he knows who it is, and I think that shocks Jamie into one of those reactions that he has where he doesn't really think and he just snaps. I think it's a trigger for him because he has so much guilt himself over the situation He's talking about he was the captain of the ship that I sailed over on and I tried to go back for Brianna, but he forced me back onto the ship. He's a madman. And all the while you can see Jamie's face and um, there's just so much guilt on it. He holds himself accountable for so much. And I think that that's part of the reason that he reacts the way that he did with Roger whenever Roger admits that he knows the man because he's like, you knew he was around and you left her alone? Like, are you a coward? And honestly, Sam did such an amazing job in these scenes. I was so impressed with him because there's such an array of emotions he plays in these scenes with Rick and Katrina that literally he goes from tears to complete and utter rage to cold and calculated you need to make a decision now. And it all happened so seamlessly. And I never once got taken out of the scene like I was in the earlier scene with Katrina. I think that his own guilt is a lot of the reason why he reacts the way that he does when he just snaps and um, goes at Roger, bald heated, as he says in the books. At the same time, I'm glad that Roger kind of pushes back and is like, no. I didn't leave because we argued. I left because she told me to go. And Jamie doesn't really have a rebuttal for that because all this time he's made assumptions about how he thinks the situation went. He's never talked about it with Brianna. So he doesn't know the full story. And instead, he's made all these assumptions about the kind of man that Roger is unfounded assumptions like he has no reason to think the way that he does he just has had it in his head all along that this is how things were so now as he's standing there with roger he's sitting on his high horse judging this man that he doesn't even know roger is over talking to claire and he says i got these stones from from bonnet i wanted to see her safely through the stones and 
Claire explains to him that Brianna is pregnant and that she doesn't think that you can go through the stones with a child and she can't go back. And then Jamie says, well, he doesn't have to stay. And Roger looks at him like, she's my wife. You think I would leave her? It's just that kind of offensive behavior that like, what kind of person do you think I am? And at what point did you make these assumptions? You don't know me. And I love that Roger finally has a chance to speak for himself because there are a lot of misconceptions that Jamie has. And I don't think that the show helps, especially at the beginning of season five as we move into the next few episodes. And I'll definitely talk about it as we go. But the show doesn't help Jamie's perception of Roger. And I think that what viewers pick up on is Jamie's thoughts on that character and his impression of that character. It's not necessarily what you're given. It's other characters' perceptions of Roger's character that are driving all the hate, I feel like. Whenever Claire is saying, I don't know that she can go back, and basically that she knows it's a tough decision, Roger says, this is all just too much. And the camera angle on Sam's face, like... Because at this point, Claire has come over to Jamie and says, for God's sake, let him think. And Jamie just turns with his back to them. And there's this one point. This is the only time in this series that I can think of when this particular camera technique is used. Because Jamie was in the huddle and then he's told to take a hike And he turns around and he's just fuming, staring off into the distance. And then we get his perspective. The camera comes around on him and we see him just fuming and trying to heed Claire's wishes and just give it a rest. And then Roger makes the comment, this is just all too much. And Jamie, not being privy to the conversation, just overhearing it, but not actually being in it and seeing the physical interaction of Claire and Roger and the body language going on, thinks that Roger's just done. He's decided that it's not worth it. Jamie turns around, fit to beat the shit out of Roger all over again, and says, You cost me a lad that I love, and my daughter doesn't need a coward. I'd rather her hate me for the rest of her life than for you to break her heart again. I think that is the true tell of Jamie's motivations in these scenes. He knows he promised Bree that he would bring Roger back to her or die trying. And we've reached a point where Roger's not sure. He's not sure if he can handle it. And I can't blame the guy. That's a lot. It's a lot, guys. And for anybody to stand there and say, oh, he's a coward. He should have known one way or the other right then and there. They're totally on Jamie's side. But I think that's more of a viewer's point of view loving Jamie. That's not thinking about Roger as a person and allowing him the space to comprehend the fact that he's just been told that his fiance has been raped and she's potentially pregnant with another man's child and can he live with that knowing that he has all of this guilt because if he hadn't left she never would have been attacked he has to live with all of this and he has to accept the fact that the child that she's now bearing may not be his and it's a huge decision for a man to take on a child that's not his anyway 
And to throw in the fact that this may be a rapist child because he made a mistake, that sucks. And that takes a lot to process. And this man has literally been thrown into the thick of it. He's literally been freed from captivity for 30 minutes, got all this shit thrown on him, and he has to process it. And Jamie's not giving him time to process the very thing that he's had months and months on the road to process. And I don't think that that's very fair for anyone to sit there and say that Jamie did no wrong in this, that they don't blame Jamie for his actions, that he was just being a protective father. Like, I get it. He's upset, but he shouldn't have gone at Roger like he did. It's not Roger's fault that they're in the position that they're in. So that's it. I'm done being on the Roger train. I will get off my soapbox, guys. But um, yeah, it's a hard position to be in. And I don't blame Roger at all for being hesitant. It's not even that he's doubting his love for Brianna. That was never the question. It was just processing whether or not he could be a father to a child that may not be his and accepting his share of the blame for what happened and making sure that he was ready to answer for what happened if Brianna needed him to. And I think that he had to be sure. It's like Claire said, whatever you decide, you need to be sure because this is our daughter. Roger recognizes that. He understands the significance of the decision that he's making, and he wants to make sure that he makes the right decision. He doesn't want to regret things. And I think that it's okay to be like that. I'm like that. I would rather analyze things until I turn blue in the face rather than make the wrong decision. And I think that's just a difference of characters that we have here. I think that's the beauty of the characters that Diana has created, that we have people that process things differently and not everybody is the same and that's okay. So they leave Roger in the wilderness and they come home to River Run and Brianna's reaction is just heart-wrenching because when she walks out onto the porch and Roger is not with Jamie and Claire, oh my God. She just breaks down into tears and she thinks he's dead. You you can see it all over her face. She thinks he's dead. Didn't once wonder where Ian was, which I thought was odd. But whenever Jamie says he's alive, you can see the relief hit her face. And she just kind of, her shoulders relax a little bit. But then within a millisecond, she realizes that he's alive and he's decided after knowing everything that it's not worth it and he's not coming back. And that's the tragic part of this entire circumstance. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like Roger because of what he put Brie through. But she wanted him to know. And I think she was right to make that decision to tell him everything because he made an informed decision when he did decide to come back. And I don't think he was, he he didn't hesitate that long. I mean, I think it was probably a couple of days. Like it was a couple of days behind Jamie and Claire. And To be honest, that's not a long time. I mean, it's not like he showed up at the ridge like he did in the books. He was completely gone. (laughs) He took a long time (laughs) to catch up to them in the books. So in the show, even, I think that he made a quicker decision, I guess. But nevertheless, I think seeing Jamie's expression when Brianna breaks down after learning that Roger didn't come with them, I felt really bad for him. Because he did everything he could. 
He literally did everything he could. And this was what he was trying to avoid. His daughter's heart being broken again. And I think he realizes that that's his punishment for his actions and that it sucks. I guess if I had one other thing to be, well, I had a couple of things to be bitter about in this episode, but um, one of them is completely book related. This one in particular is that I'm sad we didn't actually get a reconciliation between Jamie and Brie because I feel like we needed that. After such a ginormous blowout, all we got was a conversation between Brianna and Myrta about how he said, you ever find it in yourself to forgive your father? And she says, I already have. And that's all we get. And I really would have loved to have had a moment of reconciliation between Jamie and Brie. I feel like we needed that and we deserved that as viewers. The other thing that I'm really salty about, like really salty about, and I'll not talk about it too much because I plan to have some episodes where we talk about adaptational choices for this show. But in the books, Jamie and Claire make it back in time for little Jemmy's birth, and they're with her when she gives birth. Jamie being there with his daughter and coaching her through it and her mother being there to deliver that little boy It was a wonderful family moment, and it was one of my absolute favorite parts of the fourth book, and they just completely cut it for no good reason, guys. Like, literally no good reason, and it just really eats at me because we needed that. We really did. We needed that. It does lead to a good ending in this episode. I loved the reunion between Roger and Bree. It was way more satisfying than their reunion in the books, I will be honest. Their reunion in the books was long and drawn out and lots of anger and resentment, I felt like. And this was more of an immediate, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it was so romantic and the music was phenomenal. Bear Mercury did a fantastic job. And Sophie actually ran off the porch of that set all the way down, down through the road. Like, it was like a quarter to a half a mile. (laughs) And she just sprinted that whole thing on multiple takes. So kudos to her. But that moment when Brie and Roger run into each other's arms and just hold each other, it was so good to see. I feel like as viewers, this was a tumultuous season, as every season is in its own way, I feel like. But the payoff of seeing Roger and Bree holding each other and kissing each other, it was fantastic. And then to top that scene with Roger saying, take me to my son, he really felt secure in his decision. Like he thought about it and he understood what he was doing by agreeing to come back. And he has no regrets about it. And I think that that's the kind of person that Roger is. He doesn't make impulsive decisions. And once he does make a decision, he sticks to it no matter what. I feel like ultimately this was a really good episode for Roger. I know a lot of people don't feel that way, but I really appreciated how Rick acted in this episode, how he portrayed Roger, even how he was written, to be honest. I thought that they did a really good job. It's just a need for people to understand the motivations behind it, I guess. Honestly, I wish that the show had left with Roger and Bree's reunion, and that's how we had ended season four, but it didn't. 
And that's kind of where I have a bit of an issue with the Murta storyline because I felt like this episode should have been more about Roger and Bree and them getting their happy ending and that resolution of the storyline. I wish we had got Roger meeting his son and Bree and Jamie reconciling and all of that. I wanted all of that. And instead, we got a cliffhanger about Myrta, which wouldn't have happened if Myrta hadn't been written into the show. Okay, that was my <laughs> that was my piece on it. So yeah, I understand why they did it because it led into season five really well, but did leave a bit to be desired on the character side of things, I suppose. So that is the season four finale, Man of Worth. My quote of the episode is when Claire and Jamie and Ian are sitting around the campfire sharing ghost stories and Claire says, I believe that ghosts only exist when there is something to be remembered, a story worth telling or a message worth relaying. I thought that was really cool because it has some truth to it as far as my own personal beliefs. I think that ghosts do exist. I believe in that kind of thing and that most of the time they exist because they have unfinished business. And I think that 100% that's why Ottertooth appeared to Claire back in the third episode of, of season four. And then I had an honorable mention because it just made me giggle. It's when Roger is asking Jamie and Claire whether Bree sent them after him. And Claire says, yes, she sent us. And he says, oh, thank God. Having me beaten near to death and sold into slavery seemed a trifle extreme, even for a woman with her temper. (laughs) Roger's a really funny character, and I hope we get more of that in season six because... Yeah, he really is funny. And I think especially when I'm reading the books, most of my laughter comes from either him or Jamie. And I feel like we don't get near enough humor in the show. And I know that a lot of book readers have noticed that and said something about it. And actually, Diana recently just addressed that and said that humor takes time to develop and the show doesn't always have the time to put it in there, which I agree. Like a lot of funny things are the result of reactions because of something that happened between two or three characters an episode or two ago. So yeah, I think that there are moments and she said there are definitely some really funny moments in season six. So hopefully those don't get cut and we get to see the payoff. And my performance of the episode was Sam Hewen just because like I said, he had some phenomenal moments this episode, like moments that brought tears to my eyes and just gave me goosebumps. He literally went from raging mad to severely depressed in a matter of like 10 seconds. And it was amazing. Like, I don't know how he does it, but he's he's great. That closes out my thoughts on the season four finale, Man of Worth. But as always, I opened it up to the masses because I wanted to know what you guys thought about Man of Worth. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Linda Lane on Instagram says, I thought it was very brave of Ian to offer himself to the Mohawk. He has been working very hard to become a man, and this certainly showed maturity. He was always very interested in the culture. The show did not show him becoming into a young Mohawk lady, but that was also a factor. The fact that Roger was unjustly treated by Jamie and Ian, and a little testosterone poisoning, as Claire says, gave him a right to show his ire towards Jamie. It showed that he's a man and is capable of taking care of business. 
And I think Jamie respected that. Yeah, that is one thing. In the books, Ian took a liking to one of the young Mohawk women, and that was part of his decision to stay. So I kind of do wish that they had included that a little bit. But I also understand why they didn't, because it was already a really long episode. (laughs) They were already running pretty long, so I can't imagine them having time to do that unless they had completely cut out the Myrta Jocasta bits, which wouldn't have upset me at all and wouldn't have upset a lot of people. So I guess they could have done that. I respect that. But yeah, honestly, I think that this episode really showcased Ian becoming a man. And I totally agree with you, Linda. Joan Cohen on Facebook says, there were some great moments in this episode. John Bell did an outstanding job as young Ian. I love that we've seen him mature from an awkward teen into a young man making adult decisions in part to atone for his role in the Roger debacle, but also to protect his family. The farewell between Ian and Jamie was heartbreaking. Jamie must have felt he was losing another child, but he accepted his decision and acknowledged him as a man. Knowing his fascination with Indians, the joy on Ian's face when he's accepted into the tribe softened the loss for me. Brianna was right to send Claire to rescue Roger. He clearly was frightened that Jamie was there to do him further harm, and I can't say that I blame him, since he has no idea why he was beat up and sold. Jamie atoning for his sins by allowing Roger to hit him to vent his fear and anger made sense, and Rick Rankin did an excellent job showing the gamut of Roger's emotions. However, Jamie berating Roger because he couldn't process all that happened and wasn't able to make a decision to stay or go right away was not his finest moment. His impulsive anger is my least favorite of his characteristics. I'm glad Claire stood up for allowing Roger the time he needed, but I also appreciated that she was protective of Bree when she emphasized to Roger that he'd better be sure of his decision. I didn't feel like the ending was much of a cliffhanger, but rather setting the expectation for the political tightrope Jamie will have to walk next season. I know not everyone agrees, but I do like the relationship between Myrta and Jocasta. It makes sense that they would connect given their history, and it's nice to see love and sex portrayed between an older couple. I also got a kick out of the look between Jamie and Claire when they see Myrta and Jocasta embrace. This was a very solid ending for an uneven season. I agree. It was probably one of the best episodes of the season for me, Joan. There was a lot to unpack, and I'm glad that you kind of see the same thing that I see in Jamie's impulsive rage. I get that it's a bit of a trigger talking about Stephen Bonnet, but holy smokes, bro. Like, take a hike, because this guy has a lot to make decisions about, and you being in his face and telling him to make decisions faster is not going to help the situation. Myrta and Jocasta, the look... (laughs) The look that Jamie and Claire shared was icing on the cake because they just kind of side-eye each other like, what the hell is that about? We clearly missed a lot while we were gone. It was pretty genius. So there were solid moments in this episode and I did feel like it kind of tied up all the loose ends and put a nice little bow on it going into the Droughtlander. Our last comment is from Casey Filson. She says, I've been waiting for this one. I listed this as one of my two favorite episodes on the season four superlatives beat sheet, but not because of all the goody feely feelings I get for it. The biggest feeling I get is yay conclusions. Yay, it's over. And I have to like this particular episode as it stands alone. Thank goodness I saw the show first and not the book or I'd be livid. (laughs) Girl, you are speaking for the masses. Like anybody who's read book four and then saw season four is like, what the 
fuck? What is going on? Casey continues, I think Ian is amazing for what he did, and he'd be a much better fit to stay than Jamie. He spent time with their local Native American group and has learned much from it. I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this episode and watched as Jamie offered to take Roger's place, I thought, oh, brother, are Jamie and Claire going to get separated for a lengthy amount of time in every season? Repeated storylines get old, and I felt like we were beating a dead horse. Then Ian decides to stay, and I think I breathed a sigh of relief. It wasn't until I watched it again with a different perspective that I saw just how much Jamie loved Bree, that he was willing to give up his happiness with Claire and everyone else for that matter, all for love of her and that Ian really wanted to step up to the plate and take responsibility for his actions, even though he was totally misled in this whole debacle. It really shows how he's matured over the past two seasons as well. As far as the ending goes, I didn't really feel like this one was much of a cliffhanger. I don't know why. Not every season ending is a cliffhanger for me. I think the only one that really stuck out for this series is season two. Really? Because... That's one of the few ones that I don't think was a cliffhanger. So that's interesting. (laughs) Anyway, she says, other than this is such a good show, I just want more. I also had the opportunity to watch all the seasons at once. So that may have had something to do with it. I was really glad to see Brie and Roger at the end and that he came back to her. As far as the Jamie Roger confrontation goes, I think it was totally justified If Jamie would have let the guy talk first, none of this would have happened. But no, Jamie used his fists instead, and Roger had to endure months of hell, and everyone's life got turned upside down. Yes. That's about all I have, Casey. Yes. Poor Roger. Just poor, poor Roger. And this episode really did showcase Ian's maturity, to be honest. That's one of the things that is really remarkable to me is... Not only Ian's transformation, but John Bell's transformation. When we see Ian at the end of this episode, the very last time we see him, he's a boy. Like, he's made very mature decisions, and I was happy to see that he was happy whenever he made it through the gauntlet. And I felt okay with his decision to stay. Like, I wasn't devastated because he felt that he was making the right decision for himself as well as doing the right thing. When we see him next, I know that's a bit of a spoiler alert. We do see him again. Oh my God. John Bell looks completely different. Like so, so much more of a man than a boy. And I know that part of that is the way that the costume and makeup department have completed the transformation. But also it's just the way that John carries himself. And I just love it. I really do. It's it's phenomenal. I can't wait to talk about it in season five. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up listener comments. And with all of that, I am bringing my conversation on 413 Man of Worth to a close. Next week, I will be joined by my dear friend, Angela Hickey from Outlander Cast. She runs a book club on there. And they are currently wrapping up their reread of Written in My Own Heart's Blood before the release of Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone in a few weeks. But she is taking some time out of her busy, busy schedule to come and join me to talk about all things season four, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I have listed some of our talking points on the event on TSF Obsassnacks and on my page, The Sassnack Files, on Facebook. I'll make sure to make a post later in the week on Instagram to give you guys all of the details. 
If you would like to join my live with Angela, please make sure you are in my group TSF Obsassinax on Facebook. It is 100% free to join. All you have to do is go and fill out all three of the admission questions along with agreeing to follow the rules and either me or one of my admins will approve your request to join. You do have to do all four of those things though, so make sure to be thorough. I'm going to sign off for this week. You guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you next week live via TSF Obsessnacks. Until then, you guys have a good one and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.